Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Church London catch-up service. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a passion to present Jesus to London and would love for you to be part of the adventure. So why not say hello to us by visiting our website manualchurchlondon.org so we can get back to you and say a bit more of a personal hello. My name is Gaz. I'm a part of the team here at Emmanuel, and uh, we are currently in a series looking at the book of Jonah together as a church. So to recap what's kind of happened so far, we're still in Jonah 1. Don't worry, you've not missed much. Uh, But basically, God has called Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh, and he has said that he needs to call them out for their sin. And Jonah sees the size of what God's asking him to do, and he sees the people that God is calling him to show his grace to, and he decides no. And he decides he's going to turn his back and run away. So as we pick up the story, Jonah is on a boat bound for Tarshish, which definitely isn't Nineveh. And last week we heard about how a huge storm rises up against the boat and is causing them some real trouble. And now what's happened is the others on board the boat have clocked what is going on and that they realize that this is all happening to them because of Jonah. He is the reason that they are in mortal peril, because he's trying to flee from the presence of God. So Jonah's been found out. They know it's down to him, and so they approach him to see what they should do about it. So we're going to read together from Jonah 1, verses 11 through 16, if you've got your Bibles, but it should come up on the screen behind me as well. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quieten down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging." Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So what we're seeing in this part of the story is an example of the pattern of grace. The pattern of grace is something that we see all throughout Scripture, and it follows this. People mess up, they acknowledge their wrongdoing, a price is paid for that wrongdoing, and then the people are saved. And we see it time and time again throughout the Bible. We see it a lot in the Old Testament, and this example is no different from that. So this morning, we're going to unpack this pattern of grace with its three main parts. There's three points. They all start with the same letter. You're all going to love me. Acknowledgement, atonement, and assurance. Firstly, then, we need to look at how Jonah reacts to the situation. He's caught in the act. He's in quite the pickle here. Let's be under no illusion that he doesn't know exactly what he has done. He knows full well he has turned away from God and disobeyed a, correct, a, a direct command and is now running in the opposite direction. And he's very much seeing the consequences. But the problem is that thanks to his disobedience, there are now other people that are facing the consequences too. Stu, Stu told us about this a little bit last week. Here's the problem with sin it pollutes. It doesn't just stick to us. They are all quite literally, you're going to like this one, in the same boat. Thanks. Thanks. I might just sit down now. They are facing the reality and the consequence of Jonah's sin, and that this huge storm has risen up against the boat, and it's threatening to take their lives. You'd be pretty scared, right? But it's also actually much wider than that. 
because the others on the boat, they're pagans. This means they aren't part of the nation of Israel. They're not part of, of, of the people chosen by God as Jonah is. So before we start to dissect it too much and wonder if it's fair or anything like that, that they suffer for Jonah's sake, we have to consider that they themselves are not perfect people. They don't know God. They worship other gods, as we saw earlier in the passage. And it's important to grasp this reality, or we're going to get unstuck later on. So whilst Jonah is a reason they're in this situation, he is not the only reason. They are actually no more worthy of being saved than Jonah. And so Jonah, in verse 12, makes his move, albeit a little bit late. Aware of the reason behind what is happening, he presents the sailors with a solution. Throw me in the sea. Jonah steps up. He takes responsibility for his actions. Now we know Jonah a little bit by this point, so we have to stop for at least a second and look at his motive. On the surface, sure, it may look like Jonah is being this huge hero and stepping forward to save everybody. But let's just hold on, because we know that Jonah is running from God. And we know that until now, he hasn't exactly been Mr. Cooperative. So we have to wonder whether, even in appearing to be aware, he still sees being tossed into the sea as the easy way out of doing what God is calling him to do. Ever heard of being stuck between a rock and a hard place? But regardless of why, he is admitting his guilt and he's taking some responsibility. However he gets there, whether it's a change of heart or something else compelling him, he has come to the conclusion that this is the only logical response to the situation. And so we see Jonah's acknowledgement of his wrongdoing. And you may think that we've ticked our first point. The first step in the pattern of grace is acknowledgement. But he isn't the only one in this story who needs to acknowledge something because we know, as we've already said, that the sailors are not perfect either. See, Jonah has given them their path to salvation. Throw me in the sea, you'll be fine. But what do they do? Well, first, they continue to try and take the boat back to the shore. It says they rowed hard. You can imagine it. And this is a brilliant example of the human condition. The human condition of having a disobedient disposition. Even though salvation has been presented to them, they still try and save themselves. Sound familiar? I said that this pattern is on display through the whole of uh, Scripture, but this story in Jonah is actually a great representation of quite literally the whole story of Scripture. See, the Bible teaches us that God made everything that we know, and he made it to be perfect. In the book of Genesis, which if you're tracking with your bread journal, you'd have been reading very recently, he creates this perfect world. And in the world he creates, there is no sin, there is no suffering, there's no pain, there's no death. It sounds great, right? And what happens next is we learn that God made man and woman to live in that perfect world. More than that, he made them in his own image. He was so determined that he would have a relationship with the people that he created that he chose to make them in his very image. But, and many of us know the story, God told them they could live in this perfection in relationship with him, but they couldn't do one thing. And what do they do? The one thing he told them not to do. And this attempt by humans to go their own way, even to try and be God, that was the ultimate motive, meant that imperfection had entered God's perfect world. They had turned their back, just like Jonah in our story, and a storm started. Not a physical storm of rain and wind, but something of that perfect creation had become a storm. It had become tempestuous. The whole of creation was reacting to the shocking quake that human sin had caused. 
And that's the reason why the world we live in isn't perfect. The whole of creation shakes and storms. The Apostle Paul writes about it to the church in Rome. He says creation is being subjected to frustration. He speaks of creation being in bondage and decay. The result of Jonah's disobedience was a huge storm that risked the life of him and a few sailors. The result of Adam and Eve's disobedience was a huge storm which risked the eternal destiny of all mankind. And before you think, because it's quite easy when we talk about this, of pointing the finger, we can be quite quick to be like, well, I wouldn't have done that. Obviously, God said, do it, and I, you know, don't do it, and I wouldn't have done it. But we have to remember that we are ultimately the same. Whatever would have happened, you or I could have been there in the beginning, and the same thing would have happened, because our desire, our hearts, our very nature is one of disobedience. Ben spoke a couple of weeks ago. He talked about our desire to play God. That's what they were doing. All of us have that in us, the desire to rule our own life, to be the God of ourselves. And this sinful nature, this disobedient disposition is reflected in the sailors. Instead of doing as Jonah said, they labor in vain, still trying to save themselves. They fail to acknowledge their need for salvation. Instead, they try and make it happen for themselves. They don't know God and they don't obey him. Remember, Jonah is a prophet, right? So he's still the mouthpiece of God, even if he's not like the best prophet. When he speaks, he still speaks the will of God. So when he says, throw me in, he's presenting them God's solution. He's presenting them God's will. This isn't all on Jonah. Here they display their fear and their determination to save themselves. And that's why they don't listen. That's why they disobey. And so it is with all of us, right? So it is in the 21st century. This book, the New Testament, has been around for thousands of years. Jesus chose to reveal himself all those years ago. But people still choose not to engage with it. See, whether we believe in an eternity or not, we are constantly making disobedient decisions to ignore the creator, whether that's by trying to strive into some sort of eternity on our own or whether it's denying that we're even eternal beings, whether we like it or not. Adam and Eve, Jonah and the sailors, 21st century London. It looks different, but it's the same story. Disobedient disposition. But eventually, to the sailors' credit, they realize they haven't got this one. They can't do this by themselves. The storm gets worse and worse until they are forced to accept that they cannot save themselves. They give in and they accept what Jonah is saying. And this part is actually really interesting. See, previously in the passage, we've heard them call out to their gods, God written with like a little g, which isn't uncommon in those times. And they've been trying to get the gods that they've set up in their own lives, their pagan gods, to save them. Now, however, the language changes. They know that Jonah's God is the God of Israel the God who goes by the name Yahweh. And we physically see a shift in the language used. Now, I don't read Old Testament languages, but fortunately we see it in our, in our English version of the Bible. There is this word, Lords, which appears in all capitals throughout the Old Testament. And basically up until now, they've been saying God, little g. And now they're saying Lord. They're not just saying some God. They are saying the name of the covenant God, the God who introduced himself to Moses. They are saying the name Yahweh. And this is a massively significant step for pagan sailors. They're acknowledging the God of a different belief system and a different nation above the own, their own idols that they've set up in their lives. Whether we like it or not, we all cry out to different gods to save us. We're quick when things get tough to turn to the gods of drink, of sex, of drugs, influence, power, experiences, money, food, whatever it is when the only one we should acknowledge and the only one who can really help us is God, the Lord, capitals, Yahweh. The sailors have seen their situation 
and their will has lined up with God's will that Jonah goes into the sea. And they acknowledge that he is the only one that can save them. And what happens? Into the sea, Jonah goes. Splash. Acknowledgement. Secondly, atonement. Now, I know for some the word atonement might feel quite jargony, but hopefully we can tackle it together. But what happens next is remarkable and immediate. Verse 15 says, So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. As soon as they acknowledged their need for salvation, as soon as they had lined up with God's will and thrown Jonah overboard, they are immediately saved. Jonah in that moment has atoned for his and their disobedience. Now, atonement isn't just a biblical word. It literally means the act of making amends for a wrong. In other words, when something's wrong, something has to happen, atonement, to make it right. Atonement in the biblical sense is the next part of the pattern of grace. It's people aligning with the will of God or maybe reconciling with God. And there are two ways that this reconciliation happens. One mainly on the human side and the second mainly on God's side. And the first is the removal of sin from people and the second is the wrath or anger of God being turned away. In the story, Jonah going into the water represents the sin being removed and the storm ceasing represents the appeasing of God's wrath. Don't worry, I won't leave it there. We'll unpick it out a little bit more. To get a little bit of a handle on this concept, we have to turn back quite a few pages in the Old Testament. Has anyone heard the term scapegoat? We often use the term scapegoat quite negatively in society when everything's pinned on someone and it wasn't all their fault, but they've been unjustly treated. We say, oh, they've been the scapegoat. Well, it actually comes from the Bible. Jonah would have known this. See, there's a certain early Jewish practice which was used as a way to bring reconciliation that we've been speaking about between God and his people. In Leviticus 16, we see a story where a guy called Aaron, who for the context is one of Moses' mates, is instructed by God to undertake a sacrifice to bring about reconciliation between Israel and God. So we're in the Old Testament, so we have to bear in mind things look very different. We're the other side of Jesus. We don't have to do all of these things. But what's happened is is God tells him to take two goats. Hopefully I've got a picture of some goats, because I did ask if I could bring two live goats in this morning. And I was told it wasn't a very good idea, so the picture will have to suffice. I was trying to find a picture where it didn't look so cute. It's like, goats can be really cute, can't they? Obviously, nobody agrees with me. Oh, you Google goats and tell me they're not cute, honestly. So anyway, these two goats are here. And these two goats represent this two-part atonement. So one goat is called the scapegoat. And Aaron is told, lay your hands on the goat as a symbolic sign of laying the sins of the people of Israel on the goat. And that goat has on it, as he does that, all the sins, all the wrongdoing, all the disobedience of the people. And the scapegoat gets cast off into the wilderness, and it's never seen again. It just goes off, and it's not, it doesn't come back. It's alive, good for it, but it's carrying the sins of the people of Israel. And so something amazing happens in the same vein when Jonah goes into the water. He's alive, but he's carrying the sins of the people in the boat. Jonah is the scapegoat in our story. By going into the water on behalf of their wrongdoing, although they've done nothing other than acknowledge God, they're saved and they're spared. But there's another goat. There's always another goat. And a second thing which happens when Jonah hits the water. See, God doesn't like sin, wrongdoing, disobedience. 
Reason being, God created humans to have perfect relationship with him, and they turned away from him. The people he made to have this relationship have literally ghosted him and turned their backs. And that rightfully makes God angry. It means there's a wrath of God hanging over humans. Remember, these pagan sailors are doing wrong. They're not innocent victims. They're exactly that, people who since the fall of creation, their people have turned their back on God. To be honest, given everything that God knows about them, if this story was just about teaching Jonah a lesson, there would have been no need to save the sailors. There would have been no need for the storm to be quietened down. Jonah's thrown in, cool, lesson taught, end of story. But that is not how our God operates. See, the pattern of grace continues. Jonah both carried their sin into the water and satisfied the wrath of God. The anger that he was pouring out on them because of sin has been satisfied in them lining up with God's will and throwing them overboard. The wrath of God has been turned away, and this is physically symbolized by the immediate calming of the storm. And now you're probably wondering what happened to the second goat in the story, but we'll leave that one without saying. So what does the pattern of grace mean for us? See, we know that human wrongdoing has separated us from God, and we therefore are of a disobedient disposition. And this disobedient disposition leaves us not in a great state before God. The Bible teaches us that God is a God of justice. Stu touched on this last week. Like we just said about the sailors, he doesn't like sin and disobedience. He can't stand it. He can't be near it, in fact. There is no fault in him, and therefore he can't let disobedient ones near him. And as the judge, we will someday stand before him. And we were told on that day, we will give account for our lives. But we also know that we are inherently sinful. And therefore, when we give account for our lives, no matter what we've done or how hard we tried or how many boxes we've ticked, no amount of good deeds, money or influence can buy us out of that reality. There's a verse in Romans 6 that says, the wages of sin is death. It's sort of like this chart that's going to appear up here. Here we are going about our lives. <laughs> Look at these PowerPoint skills, guys. I mean, GMVQIT did me right, right? We're standing here. We are moving along this chart. And one day, near the end of that chart, we're going to die. And we're going to come before the Lord. And there's this wrath. There's a death. There's a punishment that will be waiting for us on that day. Just like the sailors, we're in this storm of creation. We're living in a place of disobedience. And we are heading towards that moment where the true revealing of our sin will be there. And we will stand before God. And in that moment, when we get there, God has every right to pour out that wrath and punish us for what we've done wrong. And if this is sounding bleak, give me a second. Just like in the story of Jonah, it is possible for that wrath to be removed, to be turned away. See, I stopped short of our full verse from Romans. For the wages of sin is death, but... And you can always feel super hopeful when there's a but in the Bible. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jonah is a symbol, a dim image of Jesus. He's not Jesus. After all, he himself has been disobedient. He himself has done wrong. Jesus, on the other hand, lived a perfect and blameless life. He never disobeyed the will of God. He never sinned. But he did get thrown into the depths of a storm to atone for wrongdoing. Jesus likens himself to Jonah in Matthew 12. There's a verse where he says, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three nights and th- three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they have repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus knows exactly what he is here to do. He knows the pattern of grace to follow. Jesus did what Jonah did. He was sent by the Father to do it. He came into the great tempestuous storm of a fallen creation, but Jesus was way better than Jonah. And it wasn't just a few sailors. Jesus lived a perfect life. He had never been disobedient to God, and therefore he wasn't under the disobedient disposition. This means he was qualified to take the punishment that was due to us, for all of us, for all time. Jesus, like Jonah, was the scapegoat, but he was the ultimate scapegoat. He was tried for crimes he didn't commit and then was sentenced to an unjust unjust death on a cross. And you get this amazing moment in the story where the cross is laid on Jesus' shoulders. We just sung about it. And he carries it out of the city of Jerusalem. And it's significant that he carries it out of the city of Jerusalem because he carries the sins of the people and he's put to death on a cross just outside the city. And that is symbolic as he carries that sin. He has taken those with him. He has atoned, just like our goat, just like Jonah, he has atoned for those sin. True love, true grace is defined by sacrifice, especially the sacrifice of substitution. Taking something on yourself, which is not your own to bear, is the mark of true love. Meeting the needs of the loved one, that's what Jesus did, no matter what the cost to yourself. Ben said it a couple weeks ago, there was nothing just about the cross. There was nothing just about what happened to Jesus. The fact that he's the scapegoat, it was unjust. It was unfair on him. But he knew what he was doing and he did it in love. From the moment that Jesus came into the world bearing our humanity and later went to the cross bearing our sin, he became the greatest example of true love and the pattern of grace. And at the same time, Jesus on the cross fulfills the second part of the atonement. In the moment on the cross, we hear him say, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this moment, the father turns his face away from Jesus. In that moment, Jesus has existed for all eternity in relationship with the father. All eternity. Yet in that moment, as he bears all of our sins, all of our shame, all of our wrongdoing, as it's on his shoulders, the father turns his face away. God's judgment, the death that was due to us, is poured out on Jesus. He takes it all on him. He covers the wrath for us. The wrath of God is taken on the cross by Jesus. Our chart is changed so that when we get there on that day, there will be no turning of the Father's face away from us. The cross has already covered the wrath. We will stand before God blameless, not because of us or anything we've done, but because of Jesus, because he's gone ahead of us, because he's taken the wrath for us. As the sea fell calm, When Jonah hit the water, so the storm of broken creation is ceased by Jesus. The storm of our life and the disobedient disposition is ceased. Our sin is removed and the wrath that we deserved has been turned away. And then three days later, when he rises again, he effectively seals the deal. He disarms the power of death, disarms the power of sin, and guarantees that we will have eternal life in him. And so the pattern of grace continues Acknowledgement, atonement, and finally, assurance. 
The final part in the pattern of grace is shown by the sailors' final actions. As they bow out of their part in the story, we read this in verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord, Yahweh again, exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. What's happened in this moment is they have seen the reason for their salvation. They know that the only reason they are still alive is because God has saved them. He has saved them, who before they saw as another tribal God or another pick-and-choose idol has suddenly come into full focus as the God who even the sea obeys. And now it's not uncommon for people to cry out to God in times of trouble. It's been seen. With all other options seemingly gone, we can sometimes see that people cry out to God, and then when things get a little bit better again, some of those prayers can very easily die down, right? It's, it's been known. But what's interesting here is they made vows after the danger had passed, and this display is the beginning of true faith. By seeing his power at work, they have assurance of who he is and what it means for them. And let's not lose the irony of the situation. Jonah got on this boat to avoid taking God's grace to the pagans. He wasn't willing to do it, and he was running from God. And in doing so, he has done the very thing that he didn't want to do in the first place. And he's even gone in and put himself prepared to die for these pagans, to show them the grace of God. And what that means is that God's sovereign will is at play in this story. This can be a hard one to wrap our heads around, but God knew exactly what he was doing the whole time. When the storm was raging, he wasn't panicked. He wasn't running about, trying to stop it getting too bad. When they were rowing back towards shore, he wasn't panicked that they were going to make it somehow, and his chance to show his grace was going to pass. But he also wasn't doing this in some unfair, dangerous way. He wasn't playing with their lives. Instead, he was sovereign over the whole situation and was in control the whole time, that he might show them his grace by any means necessary. Jonah's starting to learn, and we're starting to learn, that there is no point in trying to run from this grace. He will make his grace known. And the assurance is that he didn't have to do that. He has chosen to have mercy on them. God speaks to Moses in Exodus, and later Paul quotes it in Romans 9. God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It is God's sovereign choice that he shows himself on that day. And it's his sovereign choice to reveal himself that gives the people their assurance, the assurance of salvation. The pagans are assured by what they've witnessed, and Jonah is assured because he falls into the sea and miraculously doesn't die, but we'll pick that up next week. This morning, we've been exploring the pattern of grace, not just in the lives of Jonah and the sailors, but in our own lives too. Maybe this is something you've heard loads of times. Maybe this is something you're hearing for one of the first times today. The simple truth is this. When we acknowledge that we aren't perfect, that we make mistakes, that we're trying to save ourselves, and we come to Jesus, we come before God and acknowledge it before him, when we repent of our wrongdoing, we share in the atonement of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. We share in the fact that our sins have been removed. Jesus carried them away. Psalm 130 says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions, wrongdoing from us. If you don't know how far that is, that's pretty far. But we didn't have to know this grace. We could all have been left in ignorance, still wallowing in our sin and facing the reality of the punishment that was due to all sinners. So how do we know? How can we be assured God's grace is good? because he chose to reveal it to us through Jesus. The pagans, 
Jonah, they had to rely on making vows and sacrifices. We know Jesus. We know that Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection is the ultimate sacrifice. We know that confessing faith in Jesus is the ultimate vow. Because of the revealing of Jesus, we, like the sailors, can begin to grow in faith. Faith is given to us abundantly when we put our trust in him. Grace appears to us in Jesus. Faith is given, us to, given to us in Jesus. If you've put your trust in Jesus here today, you can be absolutely assured of your salvation, absolutely assured of your future for the rest of your life and into all eternity. It's complete. It's finished. It's done. Because of the revealing of Jesus, we can, like the sailors, begin to grow in faith. No matter how it came about, no matter what has happened in your life, no matter whether you're nailing the Christian life, struggling and wondering, why do I still struggle with this sin, or you feel shame about your past or shame about your present, let me tell you, Jesus' death on the cross is enough, period. He covers all of it. And I'm not saying that things don't change in us, so don't mishear me. I'm not saying we shouldn't flee from sin. I'm not saying that we shouldn't learn to live more like Jesus. But I am saying that as long as you are in Jesus, you are forever in Jesus. God is holding on to us, and his grip is firm. Whilst our grip may slip, often hear this one talks about holding kids' hands walking down the road. They think they're holding our hand, but we're, we're holding their hand, trust me. That's not on their grip. Their grip may falter. Our grip may falter on him, but his grip will never falter on us. His grip is constant. And that doesn't take away responsibility to hold on to him. But he will grip onto us tightly no matter what. And nothing can ever snatch you, me, us away from him. John 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and I, will not, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And wait for this one. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. This saving grace, the fact that we have been chosen and saved, is not dependent on where our faith is at or how we feel. It's not dependent on a box-ticking exercise. It is dependent on the fact that God's grace cannot be undone, silenced, or muted in our lives. And so our assurance is the promise of God in this, that he has chosen to reveal his grace to us through Jesus. In Christ alone is our hope found. In Christ's death, resurrection, we are saved, sanctified, and promised eternal life. When we acknowledge our need for saving, we repent of our sin. We share in the atonement of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and we receive faith that we may be assured of our salvation. Part of how we're going to respond today is going to be by taking communion together. Communion is a meal that is instructed by Jesus. So if you want to get your little pod ready, we're going to stay sat. We're not going to um, dress this up. Communion is a meal which is instructed by Jesus. And part of, part of this is that it's symbolizing the assurance we can have. As we take this communion meal this morning, it is a symbol that you are assured that you are in Jesus. When you are in Jesus' blood, when you're in Jesus' body, when, they are, when, when he has poured those out for you, Nothing will ever pluck you from the hand of God. So as we take communion together this morning, let that minister to you. And if you've not taken communion before, maybe you've not heard a message like this before, 
maybe you've never um, sort of, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, then feel free to let this one pass by. But we're going to take this together, church, and let it minister to your soul. This is your assurance of salvation this morning. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is enough for you. Let's take communion together. Thank you.